how do we do this without necessarily waiting on Washington? How do we create these solutions, these this big think, this grand strategy in a way that leverages the private sector and leverages what America does best, which is putting the economy out there first to create the demand that brings things to Americans and the world and do it in a way that aligns with this big sustainability challenge we all face. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is Mike Hancocks, and joining me is my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis. This week, St. Martin's Press released a critically important new book, The New Grand Strategy, Restoring America's Prosperity, security, and sustainability in the 21st century. And we are lucky enough today to have as our guests two of the book's authors. Joel McCower is chairman and executive editor of Green Biz Group, Inc., producer of greenbiz.com, and lead author of the annual State of Green Business Report. He also hosts the annual Green Biz Forum, the global event series Verge, and other events. Mark Mickleby is a retired Marine colonel and co-director of the Strategic Innovation Lab at Case Western Reserve University. Joel and Mark, welcome. Thank you, Renice and Mike. Thanks. We're so excited to have you guys with us today. This is such a great book. I started skimming it to prepare for this interview and end up reading it cover to cover in two days. Everyone listening to this podcast and everyone interested in how we create a bright, prosperous, and secure future, dare I say anyone who wants to know how we make America great again, needs to read this book. Joel or Mark, can you tell us where folks can buy a copy of the book? Uh, it should be available wherever better books are sold. Um, you know, and I know it's on the online stores like Amazon. Barnes & Noble. Also, we recommend IndieBound, which is a way to find it from your local independent bookstore. There's a, a Nook and Kindle version, and it's uh, everywhere you would expect to find books. Great. And we love this book so much. Infinite Earth Radio is also giving away 25 free copies of the book. If you'd like to win a free copy, go to infiniteearthradio.com backslash strategy to learn how you can win one of the free copies. Absolutely free, no shipping charges, no catches, and you can win one of the 25 copies. So just go to infiniteearthradio.com backslash strategy and learn how. Okay, so let's dive right in. What is grand strategy and have we had grand strategies in the past and why did we stop using them? This is Mick will be here. I guess I'll uh, tee off on, uh, on that one. Well, grand strategy in marine parlance is, you know, what's the big blue arrow that our country is going to take? What, what's the big direction? I mean, there's a, there's a very technical wonky answer that we use in terms of a formula. But the, the big idea is the big strategic direction that our country is uh, c- going. And I'll give you the historic ex- examples first just to put it in context, and I'll give you the definition. But, you know, historically, the best examples that we have are World War II and the Cold War. 
In World War II, we were the arsenal of democracy. We built up, uh, supported our allies to fight a two-front global war, meanwhile building up our own military to take on a big, big, huge challenge of the age. And then in the Cold War, facing uh, communism, we developed a strategic, grand strategic concept and a construct of containment to take on the Soviet Union. And the interesting thing about both of those, those are the best examples of grand strategy for the United States. Uh, they followed a very unique pattern where we stood on our economy, let the economy do the big strategic heavy lifting, and then we aligned our governing institutions and our foreign policy to take on that big challenge that we were facing during those times, whether, again, arsenal democracy focused on uh, global fascism, Cold War, it was about communism. Well, today, grand strategy fits so well into where we currently are uh, because uh, we have this big, huge, vexing, wicked problem, a global problem of global unsustainability. And we can get into the details about that later if you want. But it's this big, huge human challenge. It is the cause, it's the challenge that we all face today. And the interesting thing is that America right now is standing on a unique opportunity to reframe its grand strategic approach, its grand strategic framework, by focusing in on sustainability as our grand strategic organizing logic, where we can stand on our economy and we can align our governing institutions, our foreign policy to take on this big global challenge of unsustainability. And I think part of, I'm sorry, part of that was that part of that question also, why aren't we doing it right now? Yes. Why do we stop using it? Well, I think we stopped exercising our grand strategic muscles with the Eisenhower administration when pretty, uh, or after the Eisenhower administration when Kennedy took over and he pretty much shut down the you know the National Security Council the strategic plan side of it that was really the stepping stone for getting to where we are right now not having strategic capacity I'll turn it over to Joel I think he's got some comments as well yeah the uh, you know idea of grand strategy you know originated primarily in the worlds of military and foreign policy and and that certainly is how we've used it America has used it in the past uh, in doing things like fighting fascism or, or containing communism and the question as as puck said is that we haven't really had a grand strategy uh, since they lowered the hammer and sickle on the Kremlin for the last time on Christmas day 1991 but the way we've played this out in the book is not uh, a military, not a foreign policy, not even a government strategy, at least not a federal government strategy. We've taken this concept that has been used successfully in this country to take on the big challenges of the day to, first of all, identify what is the big challenge of the day. And it is, as Puck said, it's, it's about global unsustainability. We can get to that. But also, how do we do this without necessarily waiting on Washington? How do we create these solutions, these, this big think, this grand strategy in a way that leverages the private sector and leverages what America does best, which is putting the economy out there first to create the demand that brings things to Americans and the world and do it in a way that aligns with this big sustainability challenge we all face. So would then the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after World War II, is that considered one of the grand strategies? No, it's considered a subset of a grand strategy of containment. And that was the interesting Part of containment, what made it so uh, such a powerful idea when you know, George Kennan, the diplomat, came up with this idea that we would contain the Soviet Union, but we would set up a contest of political and economic systems and just show that our system could outlast, outperform, and you know, I guess quite frankly, we felt it was better than the Soviet system. 
So when Marshall sent uh, George Kennan, who developed the concept of containment, off to figure out the Marshall Plan, he already had the strategic context to be able to figure it out. And I think it was interesting that when Marshall sent Kennan off to figure out the Marshall Plan, his only advice that he gave to uh, Kennan was avoid trivia. And I think that's some of the Interesting advice that we could take today in figuring out our challenges. So, Mark, you and the other co-author of this book, Patrick Dougherty, were asked by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, to work on a new grand strategy. Why was the Pentagon interested in a new grand strategy, and why wasn't the Pentagon's plan ever embraced by the military brass or this current administration? Yeah, first of all, just uh, it, actually the guy I worked with at the Pentagon was a Navy captain named Wayne Porter. Uh, I met Patrick Doherty uh, when I was in D.C. Uh, in the Pentagon when he was at New America Foundation at a think tank. So the actual work I did for Mullen was with Wayne Porter. But uh, to answer uh, your question, uh, I think Mullen, uh, Admiral Mullen just looked out of the world. And if you looked at any given trend line in the United States, we just weren't trending in a positive direction. You know, whether you're talking about, you know, our economic condition, our physical condition, our environmental condition, we just weren't firing all cylinders. And, and Admiral Mullen, who was appointed the chairman in 2007, kind of wondering, what are we doing? All, you know, what are we fighting for? You know, what, you know, what direction are we going? What is the strategic direction? Now, mind you, he didn't get the, you know, that's the, the job of the president of the United States to be able to deliver that, the administration. And he was a chairman for both President Bush and President Obama. Neither administration was really giving a strategic direction. So you can't just sit there and say, well, I'm not getting what I need. So, you know, I'm just going to sit on my hands. I mean, we're pretty in uniform. We, we take our duty pretty seriously. So I think Admiral Mullen just felt, you know, if nobody else is doing it, I'm going to do it. Uh, and that's why he tasked Wayne and, and me to figure out that big grand strategic idea. Thank you. Yeah. So why wasn't the plan embraced by the Pentagon or the Obama administration? Well, I mean, it's uh, a lot of it just had to do with the uh, you know, sensitivities of it all. I mean, this isn't the uh, grand strategy isn't something that the military ought to be doing. The military should be a recipient of grand strategy and then go out and figure out the military strategy that fits underneath it. So there was, you know, some precious in our country is that the military, uh, as part of our oath and our duty, is that we understand that we, are, uh, we work for the civilian leadership. So there's a sensitivity of the military getting out in front of the, our civilian, uh, the, the civilians, uh, out of our elected leadership. And uh, so that was why when Wayne and I, Wayne Porter and I wrote uh, what was called the National Strategic Narrative that posited that sustainability should be our grand strategic logic, uh, we did not get prescriptive because a lot of what would I grand strategy focused on sustainability, what would it look like? Well, it would look like a lot of big decisions, domestic policy decisions like agriculture, transportation, education, energy. Those are the big, big muscle moves that would have to uh, uh, be put at play. And uh, that's not the realm of the military. And so you know, we just had to really walk a, a fine line in that regard. And why wasn't it adopted? But quite frankly, it goes back to your original question is, you know, when was the last time we did grand strategy? There's just no strategic muscle memory left in Washington, D.C. to be able to think at this scale and to do at this scale. At least that's my, uh, my opinion. You articulated in the book that the success of the grand strategies we employed in World War II and during the Cold War was the, basically a strong domestic economy supported our national security objectives and our economy was strong in large part because we tapped into large pools of pent-up demand. And you also articulate three really large pools of pent-up demand that you see currently existing in our society. Can you uh, articulate what those are and explain how tapping them will make us safer and more secure? This is Joel. Uh, Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. I mean, we've always 
tapped into our economy to take on the big challenges of the day. As you talked about, the Marshall Plan was part of that and in, in, in how we use that to help restart America's factories because prior to World War II, there'd been a depression. Prior to that, there'd been another war and there was no demand. And that was one of many things we did back then to to create the demand that got the economy going and made America more secure, both at home and with its allies and, and, and able to contain the Soviet Union out-competed economically. And so in looking, I think, first of all, before we get to the, the, the bins, I, the pools of demand, I think it's important to say, well, what is the great challenge of the day? And, and it's global unsustainability. And that's really defined by four major problems. One is that we have this resilience deficit where we just, uh, you know, our, our infrastructure is, is brittle and breaking and we don't have, uh, uh, our supply chains are, are very, very thin, and, and they disrupt very, very easily. Uh, we have this ecological depletion where all of our major ecological resources are in decline from fisheries and forests and, and the soil and so many other things. We have this contained depression, which is basically the fact that most of the major economies of the world, including America's, is being held up by monetary policy, not by consumer demand. And then if we have this uh, rapid economic inclusion of 3 billion people on the planet who are going to be coming into the middle class and, and are going to be wanting a lot of things, and it's just not sustainable the way we're currently doing things. So we looked at, well, how can America play a key role in addressing those issues while putting its own economy, its own environment, its own society on solid footing? And so the three big pools of the demand, and again, this came out of, uh, originated with some of the work that, that Puck did in the military, but we've since built on are walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity. Now, we can get into each of those three, what they mean and why, how they, they, they begin to lift America. But each of these, we'll say right now, are, are massive economic opportunities to realign our economy with sustainability and security, creating resilience, which is really the ability to withstand shocks of any kind, whether it's political, economic, terrorism, climate, or health, and to uh, therefore be in a much better place as a nation uh, to then take on and, and address the, the, the larger global needs. Uh, and so that's the basis, walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity. Do you mind if I just jump in real quick and just add on to that, just from a military guy's perspective? I mean, the the only way you can see those big, huge pools of demand, uh, the three that Joel just outlined, are you got to think of sustainability as a systems logic, as an economic systems logic. And then you can start seeing walkable communities, regenerative agriculture and productivity revolution, how they can uh, come together. And the interesting thing about that is it gets America back onto an opportunities uh, trajectory rather than this kind of manichaeistic threat and risk view of the world that we currently have. I mean, we're not really looking like the land of opportunity anymore because we're so stinking focused on threat and risk all the time. You know, we're hunkering down and we're not leading. And the interesting thing to me, again, from a Marine's perspective is when we start looking at those big pools of demand and activating them, we actually start uh, hitting at the, the most vexing security challenges we have, whether it's climate change, 
whether it's our obesity rates. I mean, you've got one in three kids born today are going to have type 2 diabetes. And you stand a one in five chance of dying. On average, American stands at one in five chance of dying from an obesity-related cause as opposed to a one in 20 million chance of dying in a terrorist-related event. I mean, th- I mean, this really puts a, uh, the mirror in our face and saying, okay, what does security mean in the 21st century? And again, it, but uh, it, it's because if you look through a lens of sustainability and you see those big bins of demand, you see actually or pools of demand, you actually see a path forward that addresses not only our, our enduring interests of prosperity, but also our in, uh, enduring interests of security in the 21st century context. So what would need to happen to tap into these three big pools of demand that you all describe in your book? The short answer is that everybody needs to step up. I mean, one of the one of the questions we're getting a lot in this is, well, you know, what's the plan? You know, in other words, is there is the government going to pass legislation or, or uh, appropriate some funding, or is there going to be a new organization formed, or you know, what is it? What's the plan to take this from this this really compelling idea that just makes so much sense? To reality, and the, the short answer is all of us. And 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 you know, I guess my analogy is is you know, if someone were to come along and say, you know, there's going to be this thing called the internet, and it's going to change the way we do so many things. We're going to change the way we do almost everything: communicate, get around, buy things, sell things, learn, and so on. And then say, well, great. Well, what do I do? How do I get there? Well, you know, you have to step up and create something for it. It's a platform. There's a big idea here and everybody has to do their part. So this is not, I mean, one of the things that we tried very hard on this is to not make this a Washington program. In fact, there's a big emphasis on not waiting for Washington to take this on, that there are things that the federal government could do to make this, uh, to ease the way, changing some of the subsidies that are perverse in the economy, to passing a number of other things that, that help particularly fund some of the big changes that need to be made. But this plan is not predicated on Uncle Sam coming in and saving the day, or if, if that's even a, a, a possibility anymore. And so this is this is something that we all need to do. And so there's there's huge part of this is, you know, where do you sit? Are you in business? Do you work for a business? Are you in in education, are you in health? Are you in uh, you know nonprofit group or you know whatever it is, faith-based organizations? There's roles to play for everybody in in this, and and that's what we laid out this idea, this concept, this pathway. But everybody needs to step in and and do something. Puck. Yeah, and uh, I mean just real specific. I think that you know to get on the pathway is tapping into uh, a lot of pooled capital. Now we got about roughly about uh, you know three and a half trillion dollars of corporate cash just sitting on the sidelines looking for a home. That's on top of ten trillion dollars in hedge funds, probably approximately forty trillion dollars in wealth uh, transition going from uh, the greatest generation of baby boomers, baby boomers to millennials. There's plenty of cash out there. There's just no investment hypothesis, long-term investment hypothesis for America. So that's why we focus in on those big pools of demand. So just specifically for walkable communities, what does that mean? Well, right now we're having a big, huge demographic convergence of baby boomers and millennials in the marketplace, uh, so much so that it equates to three times the level of demand for a specific form of housing, smart growth housing, you know, walkable, mixed-use, mixed-income, transit-oriented type communities. Uh, that's three times the level of demand of what the returning GIs uh, provided to the housing market in the form of suburban sprawl post-World War II. That demand post-World War II fueled our economy through the late 70s, early 80s. We intend to tap into that. Right now, you know, since the, the, the 2008 crash, 
50% of the real estate investments have gone into 1% of the land mass, and that 1% is walkable. You know, that's why the premiums are so high. We intend to expand that out so it makes it more affordable. There's a certain element of social equity with this because uh, we don't want to, uh, you know, we're having this inversion where now where the suburbs are becoming the stressed places and the urban, you know, ur- urban cores are becoming uh, the elite. That's something that we can actually uh, tap into as an economic engine but also tap into it as a, a mechanism for uh, wealth generation ac- across social and uh, economic strata. So the, there's very specific things we can do, and what does that look like? It don't ha- we don't have like Joel said, we don't have to wait on Washington to do anything. We can do this with an existing policy. Uh, it's just about uh, developing in a different way to tap into what consumers want. And the same thing goes. I go down the numbers for uh, productivity revolution in terms of advanced manufacturing, advanced materials, renewable energy. That play is enormous, and just the agricultural play. Shifting our way that we're growing our food can generate a whole bevy of jo- new jobs uh, for what we call entrepreneurial farmers or agriculturalists that can really feed the world in a different way at the same time fixing waterways and soils. And just to put a number around that, per acre yields using regenerative agriculture techniques are equivalent. They're 30% higher in times of drought, so climate change comes to mind. But when you consider full externalities, they're three times more profitable per acre because you're not paying for a lot of waste. You know, it's just more efficient and more effective and meets our current situation that we're facing, given the stresses of climate change, soil erosion, water depletion, et cetera. So it's a win that we're trying, we're talking about is a win, win, win situation of mashing capital together with the current demand and taking on issues around stranded assets to create a very robust new economic engine that will fuel the economy. It's all about capital mashing with demand and creating new jobs, new businesses uh, that can be deployed at a global scale. There's so much that we could talk about. I'd like to ask one more question about how we move forward on getting this grand strategic plan in place. It's a compelling argument. And then we can talk maybe a little bit about the implications. But in terms of moving forward, are there business leaders? Who do you see driving this agenda? You said that everybody kind of needs to step up. But now, are there big players, are there people that you see in who are well positioned who could drive this within the business community that would then drive the politics in Washington to be more supportive? Well, the short answer is yes, and there's already folks doing that. And the number one guy that comes to mind, and I'll turn it over to Joel, but is Larry Fink at BlackRock. He's already issued two years in a row, you know, in this most recent letter, I believe it was February, somewhere around in there, open letter to the Fortune 500 CEOs saying, get over the short-termitis. Short-term view, the quarterly report. America right now and him as a head of BlackRock needs a long-term investment opportunity that provides certainty in the marketplace. And he's already stepping in as a leadership role demanding that there are sustainable long-term investment opportunities. And by sustainable, I'm also including the concept of sustainability. He recognizes that the system is not a healthy system and it's not going to get any healthier uh, with a, a status quo approach. That is a remarkable. That is a remarkable statement and a remarkable uh, and a refreshing uh, uh, demonstration of leadership where, quite frankly, the public sector, we're not seeing it coming out of our politicians, at least at the federal level. I would say this, though, at the, at the Main Street level, we're seeing a lot of uh, leadership coming from the public sector in the form of mayors and county council members. 
but uh, Larry Fink has stepped in. So over to Joel. I'm sure he's got more examples. Well, I spend uh, much of my day and have for the last almost 30 years looking at what the private sector is doing and how they're integrating sustainability into their operations and doing it in a way that aligns with core business strategy. It's just not a. It's not just a philanthropic or nice to do. And and what's happening right now are just tectonic shifts in a, a lot of companies that haven't even been part of this. Uh, so first of all, in, in the automotive business, you see Ford creating a sustainable mobility business unit to look at what is, how do we think about this as a mobility company, not as a company that sells cars. We'll still sell cars, but how do we start to shift our business model in that direction? You've got the food companies like Kellogg's and General Mills and others who are making huge investments in sustainable agriculture and because they realize that they can no longer – their future is in jeopardy if the soil continues to be depleted the way it, it's, it's been going. If the uh, their small farmers that they rely on all over the world, the smallholders as they're called, don't have uh, sustainable ways of, of, of operating. You've got the, the banks, the chases, and the cities, and the wells as far goes, and others that are putting in – Hundred billion dollars or more each, investing in clean energy finance investments and loans and things like that. The plastics companies, the, the BASFs and Duponts and Dows and others are, are thinking about how do we create new kinds of plastics into what's being called the circular economy, where thing it's not just recycling anymore, but things can be taken and depolymerized and turned back into the same material it started from and kept completely out of the waste stream. Apple just debuted a new machine that will take apart iPhones down to the screws. Uh, it's a robot. Uh, they called it Liam. And I don't remember why it's called Liam, but it's called Liam. And that will take things so that you can reclaim. There's lots of valuable metals and, uh, and, and other things in the phones that can be salvaged and put back into productive use instead of where it's going now into the waste stream. I mean, this is, I could, I could spend an hour or two reeling off more and more examples, but a lot of this is happening under the radar. It's not something that companies talk about, at least not broadly. It certainly doesn't make them green or sustainable companies because there is no really such thing. But there are companies that are now realizing that they need to step up in some significant ways. And it's really, it's not about doing the right thing. It's about mitigating risk. The risk that their supplies will dwindle or they won't be able to get them. The risk of, of being unwanted in some of the communities in which they operate, particularly if they're a water-using company, which most manufacturers are, and it's a water-stressed area. The risk of reputational problems uh, and, and financial risk from just not being able to you know be sustainable in the financial sense. So there is a really tremendous amount going on. Is it is it enough? Is it fast enough? Is it going at the speed, scale, and scope that's required? Not yet, but the pump has been primed. And so a lot of the things that we're talking about in the book around walkable communities, around regenerative agriculture, and certainly around resource productivity are, are things that companies are already starting to do. It's just a matter of how do we make this the norm? How do we step this up? And how do we bring that them together with the public sector, with the, the consuming public, to really make this much more the, the rule, not the exception? So, uh, gentlemen, we're, we're running out of time, but I, I'd like to ask you, we'd like to talk about three specific topics. So if we, if we could get everybody on board and we, and we get the grand strategy uh, impl- implemented that are, or get people behind the grand strategy that you're proposing in your book, 
like to talk about some of the implications for some of the problems that that the world is facing today. So, so how could a grand strategy? How would that affect the conversation about climate change? Well, I, I just again, uh, I usually don't talk about climate change because we focus so much on uh, on on climate change, we forget that we ought to be talking about how to address it. We're talking about addressing it and uh, by leveraging market forces. So. Uh, the implication of this grand strategy are huge because of the, United, the scale of the United States economy heading in this direction. So what, what am I specifically talking about? If we fundamentally re-wicker our agricultural system, it all of a sudden turns from being a carbon producer to a carbon sink. If we fundamentally shift our productivity uh, in terms of materials, advanced materials, and start, I mean, just you know, suspend uh, your disbelief, but just imagine if oil, hydrocarbon molecule could be the answer to climate change by diverting the hydrocarbon molecule away from the combustion side of the house and put it into the material side of the house, particularly to uh, satisfy the burgeoning built environment that we see across the globe to a passive house standard, all of a sudden you get a double dip. You're taking it out of the, you know, burning the stuff and you're preserving the value of the molecule and you're sending it in to uh, develop lower carbon materials to a higher energy efficiency to replace lumber, steel, aluminum, Concrete, all those things that are have a high water intensity and a high carbon intensity. These are the kind of the systems logic that we're uh, talking about doing. And we can, from the United States perspective, once we step into that space and start moving in that direction, we fundamentally alter the trajectory of a global economy because we still have that level of weight. 4% of the population with 25% of the world economy, that's pretty powerful stuff. And, if, and the last thing I'll say on that is with, uh, the fundamental framing of our foreign policy with China, we'd get less of a sweaty lip over the Spratly Islands because my sweaty lip with China is the fact that they've got to put 292 million people in the urban environment in the next 20 years. And there's no way they can do it given today's resource constraints, particularly around water, concrete, energy, et cetera. So this is, a win, again, a win-win-win type of situation that we're looking to create it's a win for business. It's a win for the United States enduring interest, and it's a win for the world. Yeah, I'll just add quickly to that. I've always thought of uh, climate change as a massive economic opportunity masquerading as an environmental problem in that all of the things that, that we're talking about in the book around walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity address climate change, yes. But the most equally or more important, they lift the economy and get it on solid footing. One of the themes that we take throughout the book is that our smart growth at home becomes our smart power abroad and that if we can figure out how to get our economy in a, aligned with ecological and, and societal changes like climate change that we will not only lift uh, our own economy but we'll have influence that we don't currently have in the rest of the world in the same way that we did in previous generations where countries looked to America for solutions for to be a role model and, and a number of other things. So I think that we will take on the, ch the climate challenge by growing the economy in the ways that, that we've outlined. That's a, a happy outcome of all this. Well, clearly, there's so many more questions we want to ask you, but we'll, we'll end with this question. How would a grand strategy address the growing income inequality and lack of social mobility? How does this help working class and disenfranchised communities of color? Yeah, I mean, I'll take that one. I mean, it's, it's by focusing on, on opportunity. Uh, and I don't mean that just as a big arm wave, truly creating an environment of opportunity on Main Street. You know, so, I mean, just to, again, 
imagine places where we had food deserts in our more underserved communities and or urban environments and turning agriculture into that economic driver. Of, you know, we're talking about advanced technologies that are going to require education programs, jobs programs, and to be able to uh, small, medium enterprises get launched to start growing food right in their own neighborhoods. So again, controlled environment, agriculture, aquaculture, mariculture technologies. That not only creates a, a new types of business models and opportunities for uh, employment. It also addresses a very strategic challenge that we got in the United States. Our average farmers are 59 years old. We're aging them out. Who's going to pick up the mantle of growing our food? Only 1% of our population is growing our food right now, and they're, and they're aging out. This is the type of thing that we can do and create jobs from places where there currently aren't jobs. That's a path, to, in my mind, is uh, the, the path towards addressing income inequality is by creating those environments of opportunity around where we want to do walkable communities in conjunction with regenerative agriculture, in conjunction with a productivity revolution. Those things combined, I see as a path forward. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you said it. There's, it. It's not just agriculture that that in resource productivity where we get into the circular economy, there's, there's a lot of jobs being created because all circularity is local. That as we figure out ways to take back materials and turn them back into productive new materials without putting them into waste streams. As we look at the, the manufacturing revolution of, of 3D printing and how that is going to transform the ability to make things in America again at every local level. And, and there's the resurgence of the fix-it economy and the you know, repair economy and the upgrade economy as alternatives to the disposable economy. All of these are community-level business and economic development opportunities. And, of course, as, as Puck said, around, around urban ag is becoming, until it's growing, big time. And there's in, now growing thousands of, of head of lettuce indoors or on a rooftop or in a backyard at scale in Detroit, in Oakland, California, and Newark, New Jersey, and communities uh, low-income communities, communities of color. So there's a lot going on that is already happening organically, but we can be accelerating and mainstreaming much more, more so if we have this larger strategy in mind. And I just wanted to add just one last thing, too, because you brought up climate change before. I can't think of anything. The data is clear. Those that are going to suffer the most from the effects of climate change are the more underserved communities, You know, not only here at home, but also abroad. That is a huge security issue in a foreign policy context. It's also a big issue uh, in terms of our duty as citizens right here in the United States. By addressing these things that we're talking about over the long term, we are going to be addressing climate change. And, and again, taking an opportunities-based approach, this near-term opportunity for jobs, public health opportunities, etc. But in the long run, we're really going to be addressing what really is going to be a social injustice because the rich are going to be the ones that are going to have the wherewithal to survive the coming storms, no uh, pun intended, and it's the underserved segments of our society that are going to suffer the most. So this is how we get out in front of that problem set. So I didn't want to leave that hanging out there either. Thank you so much, Joel and Mark, for being so generous with your time today and joining us. And we wish you every success with your new book out today, The New Grand Strategy, Restoring America's Prosperity, Security, and Sustainability in the 21st Century. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And we look forward to you joining us again. And thank you for listening. And we will see you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. 
To learn more about Skio, the local government commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infin earth radio.